Welcome to Standpoint, a podcast from India discussing global issues of the moment. I'm Shruti Kapella. And I'm Orgo Sengupta. Today, our Standpoint episode is on judicial independence. Since the unprecedented press conference of senior justices of the Supreme Court in early 2018, judicial independence has been on the top of everybody's mind in India. And add to that, over the course of the last couple of years, we've seen several landmark judgments which have had tremendous political ramifications, be it the Rafal controversy, be it the Aadhaar case, or even the court ordering mediation in the Ayodhya case. Now, in all these cases, there are questions not only about judicial independence, but also about judicial power. And the question that has vexed India for now, I'd say, over five years, judicial appointments. These are not Indian questions. These are global questions that we see, whether it be in Brexit, where the Supreme Court gave a ruling that was quite unpopular, or it be landmark cases such as the gay rights case in in Kenya, or the Australian High Court's recent judgment ordering compensation for natives. So we see questions of judicial power and judicial independence as truly global questions. To discuss these issues, our guest today is Justice Bellur Narayan Swami Sri Krishna, former Judge Supreme Court of India, author of the Sri Krishna Report on the Bombay Riots, and most recently Chairman of the Committee of Experts to draft a data protection and privacy law for India. Welcome, Justice Sri Krishna. It's a great honor and pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. So, Justice Sri Krishna, I just wanted to start by asking you, you've written, quoting, I think it was Justice Cardozo, that... Uh, Great tides and currents which engulf the rest of men do not turn aside their course and pass the judges by. What do you think is happening in India? Are the judges caught up in the currents? Looks like that, at least going by some of the judgments, which in my own personal opinion are driven by the popular current thinking instead of strict jurisprudential reasoning. I would put... The Shabarimale judgment, for example. You know, looking at it, fine. You elevate it to a situation of Article 14. You elevate it to a situation of uh, fundamental rights, human rights. Forgetting that religion is a matter of faith. And in matters of faith, what exactly is, is an acceptable, reasonable behavior of inside the religion or the religious practice is not for somebody outside the religion to talk about. It's for the believer to decide what is the an inherent practice. Now the Supreme Court did a quantum jump and said, oh, everywhere else in the world it is like this, therefore it should be like this. That I think is uh, playing to the gallery, in my honest opinion. One could, sorry, argue that in fact that communitarian basis of um the criticism of the judgment, Supreme Court judgment, is equally popular. So, you know, in the sense that we are seeing a contest between forms of populism rather than... So, in a way, what is the role of the judge in, in, in interpreting the Constitution? Because, of course, it does safeguard individual liberties. True, but when can't forget that the individual's right to practice his or her own religion is also guaranteed. So... How do you say that whether I uh, take, for example, a, a religion might say, I come into the place of worship with my shoes on. Another religion says, 
never wear your shoes in now how is the court going to decide this whether it's an essential part of my religion or not it is to be decided by the person yes i do grant you that if it's really a question that like supposing somebody says my religion allows me to chop off the heads of everybody i can understand at that level you can interfere but i don't understand how you interfere in matters uh, that are purely religious so where do you think we can draw the line because uh, the question has always arisen right from the time of the shahbano case where the supreme court went into the islamic text to say what is essential and what is not which invited a great deal of backlash or even going all the way back to the introduction of modern law uh, with sati the introduction of as it were liberal principles in india comes on the back of a gender and religion question i personally think and this is my personal belief that religion should be a matter of one's faith and one's private affair neither the court nor anybody outside has a right to talk about that and what i do within my private home can never be the subject matter of court decisions yes i do grant you actually if you look at it historically hinduism was not a congregational religious practice at all it was individualized only on occasions it used to be congregational practice now therefore going to a temple was not an obligatory thing it's a, you can be an essentially practicing hindu without ever having visited a temple why because you do all your religious practice inside your house in fact you are required to do it in your house every day now therefore the only difficulty that arose in the sabarimala case is that the sabarimala temple itself has been acquired by the state and the state had made some rules which in effect put the the beliefs of the persons uh, doing the puja there and that has been struck down because it's article 12 read with article 14 otherwise i don't think can i ask you a simple question <clears throat> we have talked about sabarimala we have talked about uh, uh what is that darga in bombay yeah haji ali haji ali haji ali darga but i had occasion to visit the uh, the darga in uh, nizamuddin i had never gone there last visit i had gone there and i found that the women are still not allowed inside darga so why should the supreme court sitting in delhi bother about what happens in tabarimala instead of curing that or maybe as you are saying maybe cure neither because leave you to leave it aside i personally think the answer to the sabarimala problem is to educate the people and it automatically goes off it is not going to come about by this kind of constitutional mandate never but i am afraid to say that there are two kinds of communitarian impulses at stake here i don't mean just the hindu muslim question but the question of gender equity and gender justice and i think this is the, the this is the conundrum for the law on the one side it seems to be regulating religion but at another level it seems that the law must intervene to guarantee uh, justice for men and women equally how are you going to solve the problem do you think today that theft has vanished because the law says committing theft is a, a crime do you think murder has vanished because you think the law says murder is bad no well, it's so the I public think, conscience I that must come about it i think i think the question that 
we're going towards is the proper constitutional role for courts That's to solve societal problems. And uh, my uh, understanding of what you're saying is that courts are better at doing their everyday jobs of interpreting the law and giving judgment rather than wading into political controversies of moment, which may not necessarily be rights questions. Absolutely. I agree with you. Now look at what has happened. Now, why are courts taking on this role? That on this presumption question. that parliament is incapable of doing it. Now, public opinion can be, you know, understood by some kind of a referendum which they wrongly did in UK. But we have followed the constitutional process that we elect our representatives to parliament and they are supposed to voice the people's voice in parliament. The parliament is not going to sit together and do it. Who are the judges, the non-elected body to come out and say, no, no, this should be the right thing for you to do? Yes. Does the public want it? I mean I, think, I mean, I think you point uh, to an important uh, division, new division of labor that we have seen in the last 20, 30 years, uh, which is that actually it is the courts which seems to be making the law. Uh, I mean, most recently, uh, the abrogation of Article 377 came via the court rather than from our legislators. Now, how do you actually account for this shift? Is it to do with to going back to our constitutional moment itself because our constitution was seen to be an intervening activist document which reflected social change rather than simply, or in fact drove social change, uh, or rather than simply holding a set of norms together? I'm reminded of the interview that was given by the present chief justice of this American Supreme Court to Times Mag Time magazine mm. when he was appointed as the chief justice. He said, it is time for the judges to realize that they cannot solve all problems of society and if they arrogate to themselves this role, they are going to neither solve the problems of society nor will they solve their own problems which they are required to solve. This is precisely the, the dilemma in which our Supreme Court has landed itself. Now, by definition, a judge is supposed to decide post facto. Mm -hmm. I never understood how can you judge something which has not happened. Now, what is happening is what should be done for the future is for the elected representatives to decide. Now, we are taking upon the role of the elected representatives as to what the normative quality of the law should be. Why? Because we think that they are incapable of doing it. We means who? The judges. Not that the public has thought of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have elected them. So ultimately, these questions must be left to society to determine. And gradually, as the society's conscience level increases, it will completely find its own level. Like water finding its own level. Any attempt to force the issue will have a backlash. Any attempt to force the issue will invite opprobrium against the judges. But playing the role of devil's advocate for a minute, I was <clears throat> discussing this matter with a re now retired Supreme Court judge who said, and I was making a very similar point to what you're making now, who said that uh, this is all good in theory, 
what you are saying is all good in theory but when you have a woman who is standing in front of you who is facing life threats from a khap panchayat because she married someone outside her caste and she comes to the court to say that please give me some relief and has come to the supreme court i will not send her away on the basis of some point about locus standi saying that please go to the legislature and tell them to formulate a crime i will protect her what do you say to an yeah, argument of that doing what giving her police protection for 24 hours Uh, for the rest of her life yes have maybe that's a good start no have you solved the cap panchayat issue really is cap panchayat not operating today i know of a girl who is studying in the nalsar and she told me this is exactly the issue that is going on at the ground level it's easy to sit uh, on a pedestal and like king canute and say waves thou shall go back but do the waves uh, really go back could i just flip the question that is it because in our in the last 20 30 years this shift to making law in courts has happened precisely because indian democracy has become very competitive and it is very risky now for elected political representatives to take such contentious matter in their own hands i mean how would you describe as it were this shift that we are seeing where law is coming from the courts no i would say that the elected representatives are an index of the political and social thinking of the society if it is bad it is bad but who on earth are the non elected judges to rush into issues where the angels would fear to tread if i mean they are the custodians of our law and our uh, yes, our constitution of law means and our constitution correct that if i do something that is against law by all means punish me if i do something unconstitutional by all means punish me don't jump into the future and say this is going to be the law for you that's not your job but don't you think and this is pushing back again i understand and i agree with you that it's not their job but don't you think that there is a certain amount of moral legitimacy that the supreme court has today that's correct. which is more than the elected politicians do and when you see governance issues that are say pure governance issues that are not being done on a regular basis can you not wield that sword of contempt that actually is the one sword that a lot of government officers continue to be wary of and get some work done why not let the country move forward instead of sitting back and resting on a notion of separation of powers flip the argument a little what if the executive says the judiciary is incapable of handling the job cases in court take innumerable uh, days to be resolved so we will do a better job let's do it in our own fashion we can resolve these kinds of things would you accept that well this is all very difficult for me to argue against being a judicial conservative so maybe i'll leave shruti to play the devil's advocate no i mean i would on. i would just i mean since we just uh, rather than going in circles i just thought there's another really curious thing that has happened with the law in one sense of course you see this kind of judicial activism in which you're being critical of on the other hand uh, reports written by eminence uh, you know eminent figures such as even yourselves uh tend to be of no effect even if those reports are incredibly detailed and full of insights like the, your report on the bombay riots they seem to be a kind of mechanism to as it were ward off reform or to actually bring change so what i'm trying to say is that a lot of constitutional consultation of that variety is in a way to just kick into the long grass 
good in, good new initiatives so you have a kind of janus faced role of the supreme court's uh, supreme court judges appearing where on the one side they seem to be intervening in the making of law which is what we've discussed but another level when they're actually you know uh, asked to cast judgment to actually reflect on a very deep problem like the hindu muslim riots uh, in the early 90s or even if going backwards sarkaria commission on the on on federalism in india they in a way have not actually did not bear you know fruition they did not translate into policy and uh, you know change so how do you actually in a way see what is actually happening to the powers of the judge supreme court judge no no you gave an example of the rights commission bombay rights commission now undoubtedly it's a well uh, even if i were to be a little immodest it's a well written no it's an uh, excellent report, report. i teach you. it Thank you for i that. teach it in my undergraduate course oh i see yeah. very good i'm yeah. happy to know that <laughs> even if the powers that be didn't read that <laughs> yes it's this is what is the the the, the, the strange troubling thing that there's no, such no, an excellent uh, report the, the point that i'm making is this the government in power did not implement it for obvious reasons a when the report was made the government in power was the one that was indicted by it That's so right. they were not interested later on the another party came into power but for political reasons they did not implement it in fact the report as you rightly said you teach it you know a whole set of uh, recommendations were Absolutely. made as to how to stem this tide of rights yes but nobody seems to have taken uh, heart taken them to heart and uh, there were uh, a set of recommendations made with regard to what went wrong and what action needs to be taken against which kind of or which particular individual that's right now forget what needs to be done in the future with regard to action to be taken against persons who were named yes now the courts did nothing in that that's neither right. the high court in fact the high court summarily threw it off the matter came to supreme court the supreme court went on adjourning it from time to time to time and then finally said something which uh, i'm baffled to, to understand i thought the report was clear enough but what the supreme court did ultimately resulted in one constable being uh, convicted convicted that's and right and one mla being convicted who fortunately was accorded better justice by the good lord because he died soon now what have you achieved by this now you are blaming the elected representatives of inaction the executive of inaction what has the court done yes court has done nothing to add to the situation in fact that is where the court could have acted that's correct because that is a post facto situation where it could have acted uh, affirmatively and firmly they didn't do it but when it comes to a question of what should be the normative things in society should be you jump up and say just this should be the normative values to be at maybe that's actually made, make, makes me think about whether we have a structural issue at play that parliament whether whether it functions or not is a body of 545 elected representatives the executive well a lot of people would say currently is one person but is a theoretically a cabinet of ministers as in who all have to decide and swim and sink together as we were taught in our civics classes but the judiciary which is the supreme court and the high courts is no longer an institution but if you were to take the supreme court 
it would as a lot of my lawyer friends say basically 13 division benches 13 supreme courts if you ask me 13 supreme courts is an even more provocative way of putting it because for the non lawyers listening to this it's because the supreme court sits in benches of two judges each and essentially there is a senior judge who seems to call all the shots in a particular judgment do you think this case and this the bombay riots case is perhaps an example of a structural issue as to how the supreme court is becoming too contingent on individual judges rather than an institution that focuses on laying down the law authoritatively for all times to come i am inclined to agree with you if you look at the history of supreme court from say the 1950 till uh, the last judgment that is given every time it has been the personal or the the proclivities or the personality they judge which has driven the law now if you remember there was one particular period when because of particular judges i don't think i should name them it was treated as you know pro tenant pro labor type of supreme court and then an earlier period where it had completely gone into the fundamental rights the individual rights as against the so called socialist uh, doctrine and then the thing flipped over then it become purely socialist and then after 1990 the supreme court is in a dilemma it doesn't know whether it should go back on its socialist doctrines or it should uh, look at what is happening in the rest of the world including our own liberalized economy therefore today you will see a lot of judgments where the concept of liberalized economy is being injected to it but you look at the the constitutional declaration in the preamble it still says it we are a socialist country don't forget that yeah i mean i think party political ideologies uh, you're quite right have had an impact on the on the nature of judgments i was going to ask you a much more structural issue which was actually the long lasting legacy of the emergency itself because you mentioned the long long history but one as a historian one can see there was a sharp break when when the politicization of the judiciary happened under the emergency and in the kind of way in a bizarre twist it's post emergency it's actually the supreme courts that have become very very interventionist in in the way that you are critical of and it seems that the supreme court judges had as it were their revenge on the political class uh, after mrs gandhi's you know emergency so how do you see as it were the long shadow of the role of the executive or and political ideology post emergency into the supreme court my answer would be simple it's a newly converted who is very religious the old man like me continues to be moderate the supreme court during the emergency absolutely caught out i'm sorry to That's use correct. this wrong word yes thereafter it was as if to atone for their sins that they went to the other extreme the pendulum totally swung to that that's right now judges are not ex- not expected to do this swinging from left to right and left to right to left they are supposed to be always centrist looking at facts coming to something that arises from factual situation this trying to trim your sails according to the political winds is not something that i would accept is the part of the judges oath of office the judges oath of office said you will do what is necessary to follow the law and implement the law and justice in accordance with the law laid down by the constitution now where did the constitution give you this kind of a right 
where does the constitution tell you that you look at what is happening you act as a wind vane but a large section of uh, of uh, at least uh, opinion in india does think that it is the judge's responsibility to retain the spirit of the constitution given sometimes how uh, erosive and corrosive and divisive our politics has been well then let's run that uh, in fact i have said that if the supreme court were to be given charge of the country's uh, uh, government for the next year, five years and try it out and see whether the Supreme Court can do a better job than this instead of sitting there and giving judgments. But actually coming back to the point previously, I think uh, this is of course something that, you know, as as legal scholars we hear of as it's basically the Supreme Court aton atoning for the emergency and this is, this is a common, common thread of analysis. But what always strikes me as it is the fact that the Supreme Court perhaps today has taken that atonement too far. As in we can't possibly be atoning for the emergency 40 years later. And understandably, it was a dark moment for the judiciary. But if today, in cases where, say, the government passed parliament passes an amendment such as the amendment to bring in the national judicial appointments commission as a bipartisan body it may have had certain faults but as a bipartisan body do you think it is proper in a judgment to hark back to the emergency and the importance of judicial independence to strike down these amendments it was not necessary to hark back to emergency i grant you but judicial independence is something that every judge has. Where does judicial independence come from? It comes from your oath of office. Oath of office says, I shall not be swerved by anything other without uh, affection or hatred towards anything. I am required to stick by the constitution. And constitution, if you are going to read the constitution in accordance with your personal proclivities, then what have you done? You have acted against your judicial oath of office. But do you think that this is being a bit idealistic? Of course, the oath of office is there. There is no doubt about the fact that the oath of office, if judges were angels, then of course that oath of office would have been enough. But do, don't you think that this is perhaps being a bit idealistic, that judges are wading into political controversies, there are uh, things that they can do, and so the judiciary is going to become more and more political? Well, that's what has happened uh, in other countries I have seen. But I wouldn't say that it is right. If you are asking me whether it is right, my answer is a resounding no. But maybe perhaps we could take the American model, where we know as to who is a Republican judge and who uh, is yeah. a... If you ask me, it is normative to be honest. If you ask me what is the ground reality, I will tell you 99% may be dishonest. Therefore, do we accept it as, as a fact of life and carry on? But if you ask me, I will say, no, being honesty is the best policy that was taught as a child and even now I repeat it. But given the fact that, let's say, the court is, as a matter of fact, whether it is right or not, wading into public issues of moment, that is making it more political because there is more interest in what they are doing. 
given that do you think perhaps that we need to move to some kind of appointment model which is more in tune with what the people want that is like a senate ratification in the american case or some such case because if you are going to decide issues of moment that people that affect lives of ordinary people on a daily basis then people deserve to know who you are so why not a televised ratification hearing well, for supreme court true. judges if you accept as an inevitable principle that the judge ought to sail with the wind then you are right you take the side person with the right sails i agree with you then there was no need of judicial independence then then what is my political doctrine what is my social doctrine you pick me on the, as a judge and put me there but perhaps if we take the american conception it's not that they would say an american constitutional lawyer would say that is not as if the judges are not independent independence is only something that begins after you are appointed so given the fact that i've given the judge tenure for life and that his salaries cannot be reduced whether it was a republican president that appointed her or a democratic president that appointed her shouldn't make a difference the judge is independent as on date because the person is in office and no amount of threat Did can affect that happened in united states <laughs> that's correct you telling me that <laughs> that's the theoretical understanding there are exceptions like bush versus gore and then, so on but on a everyday basis i would say that it happens in a large number of cases i think we failed miserably with the governors Absolutely. in india on that basis so i don't think that is Uh, that will run i mean because i don't you think unlike america the issue or perhaps like america the issue is not so much parliament on which we've spent some time but actually a very uh, uh, the the powers of the executive uh, which we've also seen in recent controversies uh, uh, with when the with the press conference uh, of the four judges uh, under this regime so it's it's really not simply legislature versus judiciary but also uh, amb- ambitious executive uh, power in india shruti don't forget that the constitution before that let me step back one one step democracy itself is inherently contradictory it is inherently filled with tension the constitution has divided three different constitutional organs which are in perpetual tension mm. now if any one of them pushes back the, the other steps back the other one will occupy the space why do you think parliament was unable to control all that because the parliament didn't know what to do the space is occupied by the judiciary so it's like saying that if you have a weak neighbor you trespass into his garden now when the neighbor becomes strong he'll beat you back this is going to happen and and i'm shuddering to think what if the neighbor is too strong and i am required to beat back all the way back right i mean that is actually a fundamental uh, issue this is not simply about court but about democracy uh, per se and the tussle between as it were elected and unelected power we've spent a lot of time talking about it as just between judges and 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 and, and uh, elected representatives but the unelected uh, elements of democracy such as the press in india uh where do you see actually that division of labor and how do you see that picture today in terms of liberties in terms of control in terms of executive power in terms of politics because it seems to be the drift of the conversation certainly between you and orgo seems to be that you 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 want to curtail the unelected uh you know powers of the judiciary as it were but uh, but certain unelected powers like the press have also seen a waning of their influence particularly in the last 
four or five years. I am at heart a conservationist. What the constitution says is my jewel. I'm not going to interpret the constitution because of my political thinking or because of the manner in which uh, there is liberal opinion moves. Constitution is what constitution I read it, I understand it, I implement it. Maybe this actually reminds me of something that you said, Justice Robert said, that your job is to call balls and strikes Correct. and nothing more than Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just echoing what the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said, where Supreme Court is probably the most advanced of the courts by your reckoning. So maybe there is something to be said about the American system after all. <laughs> no, but coming to a coming to a different point, which is basically judges in a non-judicial avatar, the press conference. I think it would be remiss to have a discussion on judicial independence and not discuss the press conference of senior justices in a lawn in Delhi. I think it was the 12th of January 2018. Uh, we've never seen judges like that before. It may have been an unprecedented event which caused them to do it or the fact of doing it was also an unprecedented event. What are your views? Uh, frankly, I don't know what drew them to them because my knowledge is only gathered from newspaper reports. Newspaper reports don't give you an insight into it. They tell you what happened. What happened is, yes, there was a press conference, but what drove them to the press conference is still not very clear to me. So I assume that there was some good reason that is where they took the unprecedented step of calling a press conference, which a sitting judge never does. And maybe it's a question of unburdening themselves because there was something that was hurting them from inside. But let us then assume that, you know, given that they are the four senior most justices, that there must have been something grave that, that caused them to take this, take this unprecedented step. If you look at the aftermath of that, given that something so grave has happened, I personally was quite disappointed that no structural reform of any kind came about. There was a failed impeachment motion that was moved that made it about one person, the sitting Chief Justice, and that fizzled out and nothing else happened. And the Supreme Court goes on as usual without the public knowing as to what that fuss was all about. So do you think that perhaps... In the aftermath of it, do you think that either A, there should have been serious reforms or B, that perhaps they shouldn't have done the press conference in the first place? Frankly, I was scared that they would appoint a commission to go into all this and I would dead... <laughs> and then you it. would have been I the chairperson of the victim <laughs> moment. <laughs> Having been the victim of all these commissions. So I said, oh my God. That's exactly what my wife told me in the first season as soon as she read it. She said, it's next job cut out. Thank God it didn't come out. You never know, maybe it will come. <laughs> no, it's difficult to say, you know, structural reform in an institution like Supreme Court requires a lot of clear thinking. It's not so easy. It's not so easy because each of the judges is vested with power and no one, no one would like his turf to be taken away. But let's take, an, take the issue of appointments. Do you think it's time for the collegium system to be reformed or to go? Yes, provided there is a system which is alternatively, which is alternative to it and equally good, if not better. Therefore, the you know the, what was the problem with the previous uh, NJAC? If it had been left out with a majority of the judges, I think it should have been held constitutional. Because the moment you say it is left to 
some non-judges, then the judicial hackles will rise. That's correct. And uh, there is expertise at stake. But also, one of the other things uh, is that for in the last 20 or 30 years, at least the Supreme Court, rightly or wrongly, has come to symbolize as a custodian of liberal values and liberties in this country. Uh, so I think, I mean, in that sense, the the press conference also pointed to those kinds of constraints going on in the Indian, in the, in the Indian democratic setup. So, uh, this, uh, yeah, I mean, it's question of liberties, back to liberties, back to Sabri Mala. And, and I don't think our constitution was meant to be, as it were, immune from politics or even from social change. I'm not quite sure of what you're saying because the press conference did not establish anything clearly so that somebody could pick on it and say, well, this is required to be done, I'll do it. What did the press conference say? It was just anguish coming out. It's like somebody crying. So unless you tell me what is the reason why you are crying, I cannot help you. Yes, I know you are crying because you are hurting. For what reason? So spell it out. The very fact that it could not be spelt out also oh. is is intriguing and telling at the same time. So what do we do? Appoint a commission? <laughs> <laughs> Back to the commission. <laughs> but, but in the future, if there were two reforms that you think the Indian higher judiciary, particularly the Supreme Court, should actively think about and that there should be consensus not just between political parties but also between political parties on the one side and the court itself on the other. What do you think those should be? Yes, they should sit together and say these are the rules of the game. It's my job to do A, B, C, D. I shall do it honestly. It's your job to do A, B, C, D. You shall do it honestly. I will not tread on your toes. You will not tread on my toes. That kind of uh, rules of the game can be established. Now, uh, it's possible to do it in every walk of life. What is so special about the Supreme Court or the political executive? But what is happening now is, I keep treading on your toes, you keep treading on my toes. And you call me names, I call you names. This game is going on. But maybe that's what you said, as in the constitution is inherent with that kind of tension. Correct, but then you should draw a line, no? It's like I always say, say that the, the democracy is like singing on a hammock. There is tension at both sides. You release the tension on one side, you, the people will fall down. <laughs> Therefore, the tension must be maintained for the betterment of the person who is using the hammock. Right. Of course, this is a triangular tension, not merely. That's right. <laughs> I was going to ask you to return to an older question about other uh, forms of law and justice uh, that exist in Indian society, uh, like the cup and chayats. Uh, what is the way out of that? Kaap Panchayat is something uh, that cannot be even uh, you know, accepted as truly representative of India. That's something very peculiar and that's something really harms society. There is no doubt about it. I mean, it's as bad as your Sati or it's that's as correct. bad as... But you know something? It's interesting. Law by itself does not cure the social thinking. Rajasthan... Sati is supposed to have been abolished in this country, right from William Bentinck's case, time and then by legislation. People still glorify Sati. People still think that it is a great thing. In fact, there is a, a temple for Sati. Because this Sati, Sati concept came up from the Puranas. The way the Daksha Prajapati 
banished um, Lord Shankara and what happened to the Sati at that but time. That is why she in jumped into it. Hmm. You know. They think it's a great, great thing for a woman to do. Now, whether it is a great thing for a woman to do in 2019 is a different question, I grant you. But I'm saying that social reform, you may make noise about it, but will you really change it in the ground level? And why are we just jumping into something that uh, has not been possible for society to do it itself? But arguably, you could say that the Indian constitution was meant to uh, to create a social reform and change just the way, say, for instance, on caste reservations to produce, as it were, justice and equity. Uh, and in a way, that's what I was trying to get at, that actually this, this constitution has been much more intervening and much more upfront about it being a, a reformative uh, institution rather than simply one that... But has held- it solved the problem at the grant level is the question I repeatedly put before you. Has it solved this question of untouchability? Has it really? As a historian, as a... I mean, it has It has certainly educator. given political power yes, to it, those who were marginalized were and people it. have now rights to go we into education and so on. We are examining it from Delhi, from Chennai or from Mumbai. If you go down deep into the villages, has it really solved the problem? Can you tell me that they are aware of Article 17, untouchability has been abolished? I can personal experience and tell you, even judges practice it. Though I don't want to name them. <laughs> I think I think we could go on on this question forever because it's a difficult question as to what the role of judges are in enforcing the constitution but not crossing the line. Uh, but I think, as in the, given the fact that we've been quoting Americans from the beginning, I think perhaps James Madison's quote is useful here <laughs> that ambition must counteract ambition. So in some sense... Checks and balances is about independent judges standing up to unelected governments, but doing so within their own turf and remit. Absolutely. So I, I think this has been, uh, Justice Krishna, this has been, uh, as ever with you, as a provocative yes. discussion. Uh, it's Candid. As a... As an individual, I could, uh, and as a legal scholar, I'd like I'd say that it's very rare that we hear such judicial conservative voices uh, in in India today. And I think it's good sometimes to have this note of caution and not get carried away with the progressive judgments that we are seeing, which may be good but may not be strictly the judicial function. If you remember, uh, probably you were at a student at the National Law School in Bangalore. I had written an article which got published in the uh, Supreme Court Journal with a provocative title saying, Skinning the Cat, which was precisely the thing. And I didn't say that after I retired. I was sitting at the Supreme Court. And this was my view then. It continues to be my view today. And maybe after Shruti persuades me to the contrary view, I might take a contrary. (laughs) (laughs) For that, we'll have to head outside the studio. Thanks very much for joining us for this episode of Standpoint. Look forward to having everyone next time. And thank you again, Justice Thank, thank, you. Thank, thank, you. thank you very much. It has been great.